Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Uh, There's a book series called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Uh, These are manuals based on interviews with experts in a variety of fields. Uh, They have sections on things like how to escape from quicksand or how to jump from a building into a dumpster or uh, how to perform an emergency tracheotomy. Uh, In case you ever need to do that, all you need is a razor blade or a very sharp knife and a ballpoint pen with the ink removed from it. Uh, These books have sold millions of copies. Uh, Some of the advice is pretty predictable. You know, one section is how to deal with a charging bull. And the number one rule is don't antagonize the bull. And that would seem very, very, fairly obvious. But sometimes the advice is quite demanding. Uh, There's a section called how to survive if your parachute fails to open. They say first you need to signal to a jumping companion. Uh, They don't say what to do if you are not with a jumping companion, Uh, but signal to a jumping companion whose chute has not yet opened that you're having trouble. When your companion and new best friend gets to you, you're to hook arms, and they say that you'll be falling at a terminal velocity of about 130 miles per hour. And then you're to open the chute, and the chute opening, uh, the shock will be severe, probably enough to dislocate or break both of your arms. They say that you may hit the ground slowly enough that you'll only break one leg, (laughs) but your chances of survival are quite high. That's how to survive if your parachute fails to open. Now that you have a little sense of what this book is about, I want to try a little test of your survival skills to just kind of see how savvy you are. All right, so here we go. Question number one. What do you do if you're confronted by an angry mountain lion? Now, I'll give you four options, and you pick which one is best. Uh, A, run. B, play dead. C, make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. Or D, sing a gentle, happy song. (laughs) All right, what do you think the answer is? Believe it or not, the correct answer answer according to the worst case survival uh, handbook is C. Make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. All right. Now the same situation, you're you're facing an angry mountain lion. What do you do if you're confronted by an angry mountain lion when you have a small child present? And this is covered in the manual. Is it either A, pick the child up, B, shield the child with your body, C, shield your body with a child, or D, run. You may not be able to outrun the mountain lion, but you can probably outrun the small child. Do you want to know the answer? You're like, yeah, this may happen to me. Uh, They say to pick up the child because it'll make you look bigger. So open your coat, open the child's coat, anything to make you look bigger. Okay, so if you learn nothing else uh, today, you can walk away saying, I learned how to survive when confronted by an angry mountain lion. 
this is what the author of these books writes. The principle behind these books is a simple one. You just never know. You never really know what curves life will throw at you, what is lurking around the corner. You never really know when you might be called upon to choose life or death with your actions. But when you are called, you need to know what to do. That's why these books were written. Well, today we're going to look at another kind of worst case scenario and see how real life people, ordinary people like you and me responded because you never know what curves life will throw at you when you'll be called to choose life or death. But when you are called and you will be called, you need to know what to do. And that's actually why the Bible was written. Look at Daniel 3, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, if you listened to the message last week, you know that at the end of Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be on the verge of becoming a servant of the God of heaven. Remember, Daniel was the only one who could tell Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamt and what the meaning of it was. And it included the assurance of the coming judgment of God, like the rock that would cover the whole earth and bring the statue down. At the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar said, Surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But now it turns out that Nebuchadnezzar has a very selective memory of Daniel's message. He conveniently forgets about Daniel's message about God, the living stone, the coming of uh, the kingdom of God, the, 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 that God's uh, shattering judgment would come. But apparently he does remember that he was the head of gold in the statue. And apparently he thinks about how the kingdom is vulnerable because he was told that it was uh, in his dream that it was is standing on iron and clay, diverse elements that don't mix and make his kingdom vulnerable. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create a society of captured peoples from different uh, nations and languages and cultures and so on. He's dealing with what we talk about in our day as multiculturalism. You know, we uh, sometimes act like we're the first ones ever to face a situation like that. We're not. Nebuchadnezzar faced uh, that a long time ago. And he decides that what all these diverse peoples need in Babylon is unity, something to hold them together so that his kingdom is not vulnerable and split apart by all these factions. And how better to create unity than to form a common religion? And so he makes a statue. Now, 
what God this statue represents is left quite vague. I think it was deliberately left vague because this is not so much about religion as it is about politics and power. We have a motto on the great seal of the United States, e pluribus unum. It's, it means from the many, one. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is concerned that there are too many gods. There's not oneness. And so he tries to create this oneness and he in, in, invests a lot of effort into motivating the people to go along with this. He creates a remarkable artistic and beautiful statue. We're told that it's 90 feet high and made of gold. It's an object of immense value. And then he has music performed by every instrument that he can think of. That's why there's this long list that keeps being repeated in the text. This would be very impressive. The people are to make a pilgrimage to the plain of Dura outside the city of Babylon. And there they'll see the most impressive gathering of leaders from all the peoples and cultures ever assembled. Again, that's why the writer has these long lists that are repeated. If all that is not enough to compel people to bow down, then Nebuchadnezzar decreed that failure to comply meant you'd be thrown into a fiery furnace and be burned alive. Uh, now picture this moment. There is a vast assembly of countless people from all kinds of uh, tribes and tongues uh, they've never seen anything like this. It would be a little like the, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, except add to it that this is to be a transcendent religious experience. And then the music starts, and the people are highly motivated to bow down. Literally in verse 7, the text says, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. It's like a race to see who hits the ground first. There was a ripple of noise as everyone fell to the ground. But then three of the highest ranking officials are still standing in front of the assembly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only three still standing while everyone else is on the ground. In the midst of a submitted nation, in an act that looks like either courageous faith or suicide, they refuse to bend the knee. They refuse to bow their heads. And no one has any doubt about what will happen next. Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. The word denounced here literally means to eat the pieces of them. It could be translated slandering. It's intended by the writer to convey intense hostility. These astrologers, these bureaucrats that had been placed under Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're, they're consumed with jealousy, and this is really their chance to bring them down. And if you've been with us through this series, by this point, you know Nebuchadnezzar well enough to be able to predict what he's going to do, what's going to happen next. Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I just want to pause for a moment just to consider this question. Nebuchadnezzar asks, what God will be able to deliver you from my hand? 
but this falls into the category of a rhetorical question. You know, when a speaker asks a rhetorical question, he's, he or she is not looking for information. They're just making a point. You know, parents' favorite questions are rhetorical questions. Like number one favorite question of a parent is, do you want a spanking? Like it's a rhetorical question. They're not really looking for information. No child says, you know, well, I was going to play Nintendo, but okay, sounds like a good idea to me. It's a rhetorical question. So when Nebuchadnezzar asked what God can deliver you from my hand, he's not looking for information. He's not looking for a name. He's just saying, you better understand you're in my hands and there's no way out. You obey me or else. But much to his surprise, these three men don't treat it as a rhetorical question at all. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment, because this is a statement of remarkable faith. Our God is able to save us from the furnace. He is able to rescue us from danger. He is able to deliver us even from your hand, your majesty. Our God is able. I don't know if it's possible for followers of God to spend too much time reflecting on stories that teach this one truth. The God you and I serve, the God who meets us here right now, our God is able. Like we all have stories from our lives that reflect this one truth. The God we serve is able. The God we serve is able to reconcile broken marriages. And he's done that for marriages in our church. The God we serve is able to liberate people from addiction. And he's done that for people in our church. The God we serve is able to heal damaged bodies and able to forgive the darkest sin. The God we serve is able to provide for the greatest need and able to guide with supernatural wisdom. He's able to inspire spiritual gifting beyond human ability in unbelievable ways. The God we serve is able to soften the hardest heart, able to bring the farthest runaway prodigal rebel back home. The God we serve is able. Well, these men say this, the God we serve is able, but they don't stop there. I want to look at another statement of incredible courage, of dedication and commitment, because I think it's one of the most powerful statements any human being has ever made. Think about what, what led to this moment in their lives. These are three young Hebrew men who are captured and exiled in a foreign country. They give their lives to God and they serve him as best they can with courageous faith Amazing things happen, and they're promoted to positions of prominence in Babylon. And then one day, they hear about the king's edict that all the people must bow down to the god of gold. And they meet together as a small group, and they decide it's unthinkable that they would ever bend the knee and give their devotion to any god other than the god of heaven. I mean, they must have hoped and prayed that it would never come to this. They must have prayed after the story of Daniel and the dream in chapter two that Nebuchadnezzar would be converted and follow through on his statement about Daniel's God being the one true God, but that prayer was unanswered. They must have prayed after this decree was made that Nebuchadnezzar would repent, 
that he would come to his senses, but he didn't. Maybe they prayed this decree would, uh, wouldn't be enforced, but it was. Maybe they prayed that because of Daniel's influence, the Jewish people might be uh, excused from it, but they weren't. Maybe they prayed that when the day came, no one would notice if they failed to bow. Or if people did notice, they wouldn't tell. But people did notice, and people told. None of these prayers were answered, not one. At every point, these three men were bitterly disappointed. At every point, this nightmare, their death, grew a little closer to reality. And now they face their worst-case scenario. They realize the door to every avenue of escape has been closed to them. The parachute has not opened, and apparently it's not going to. And so they testify once more to their faith in the one they serve. Look at verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your master's hand. Now look at verse 18, because this is one of the greatest statements of dedication and commitment ever uttered by any human being. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Don't be deceived, Nebuchadnezzar. Our God can rescue us still. The God who drowned Pharaoh's army and knocked out Jericho's walls and conquered Goliath with a stone has lost none of his strength. Our God can rescue us still. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, we have already decided our response. We've made up our mind in the face of our worst case scenario. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship a God of gold that you have set up. We will march to our death singing hymns of praise to the only God that we will ever serve or love. Our God is able, our God who drowned Pharaoh's army and knocked on Jericho's walls and conquered Goliath with a single stone and raised his son from the dead and did these amazing things through Blue Oaks Church in Pleasanton, California. Our God who brought you into existence and gave you life and brought you here, our God is able. Our God is able to answer your deepest prayers, to fulfill your fondest dream. You know what, but I'm here today, today to ask you, what about when he does not? Is my commitment from one day to the next contingent on whether I'm getting from God what I want? What about when he doesn't give me what I want? You know, I think of Job who refused to dishonor God despite intense suffering day after day with no relief and no explanation, who says these amazing words in Job thirteen fifteen, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Like, who else can I go to? Where else can I turn? What else would I do? To whom else would I belong? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I think of Esther, who, like these three men, decided one day that she would confront a tyrant king for the people of God, even though it could mean death. And she says in Esther 4.16, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I think of friends of mine who desperately want to have a child and for, for so long they've prayed and, and they've hoped 
I don't think I've ever seen anyone more tenaciously cling to this hope. Like our God is able, the God we serve is able. They prayed for over seven years for a child. And when it felt like God was not answering their prayer, they decided that he must want them to adopt. They decided God was calling them to adopt domestically. And so they went through the entire process with a girl who had an unwanted pregnancy and they met with this girl a number of times and they journeyed with her through the pregnancy and they were in the delivery room during the birth and received the child as if she were their own they spent several days with this baby believing that this child was an answer to their prayers finally god gave them the gift of a baby several days later the birth mom changed her mind and they had to give the baby back and in the midst of this great disappointment, they are completely devoted to God. I mean, this is a man and a woman who would give up everything in this world, like business, money, home, whatever, to have this one prayer answered. And for reasons that none of us understands, it's not happening. And this couple said, through flowing tears, if we never have a child, we will not let go of God. We want this more than anything that we've ever wanted in our life, but even if the answer is no, we will not let go of God. Even if he does not, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. You know, a lot of people say, God, answer this one prayer. You know, grant me this one request. Come through on this one dream and I'll serve you. I'll spend the rest of my life telling people about you. I'll do wonderful things for you. So I'm here to ask you today, Will you devote yourself to him even if he does not? Maybe you're in a relationship and you're extremely attracted to this person, but this person is pressuring you to cross boundaries, so maybe sexual boundaries that you shouldn't, or is involved in behavior that's opposed to your deepest values. And you can rationalize saying together, you know, but underneath, I'm afraid, like I may never find someone else that I'm so attracted to. I may end up alone. Listen, God is able. God is able to bring someone far better into your life. But today, I'm asking you to say, even if he does not, even if God does not bring someone else into my life ever, even if it means facing fear and aloneness, I will not dishonor God anymore. I will not bend the knee to a relationship that I know doesn't please my Heavenly Father, even if he does not. Maybe you're in a marriage that's a disappointment to you. And you've been saying, God, I know you are able and he is able, but today I'm asking you to say, God, even if you do not, even if my marriage is never what I've dreamed that it would be, maybe this involves finances. You know, so often when it comes to uh, material things, we focus on how God is able, you know, God is able uh, to bring good things to us and he does. But what about when he says, not now, or not this thing, or not this way, or just flat out no? What kind of devotion does your financial life reflect? Maybe you haven't been giving and you made a commitment last year that you were going to tithe or you were going to give more in 2022 than you did in 2021, that you were going to live like you believe what Jesus said is true. It's more blessed to give than to receive, but you didn't live that way in 2022. And I'm asking today if you'll say, even if he does not, I will not worship a God of gold. My life will not be about affluence or financial security. 
You know, the truth is most of us live at a level of uh, prosperity and affluence and abundance, unlike any other time in human history throughout all of human society before us. And you know what? We didn't earn it. God just gives it. And I'm asking, will you decide in your heart that even if he does not, even if I never achieve the level of financial abundance that I feel like I must have, even if he does not, I will honor him. I will give with full commitment. I will not bend a knee to a God of gold as this culture teaches me so relentlessly. I will not. I will honor him with what he's given to me with a full commitment. I'm asking, will you say today, even if he does not? Maybe the truth is, in your spirit, you've been saying something like this. You know, if God would just make the people in my family or the people in my small group or in my workplace, you know, spiritual giants who would give me affection and admiration and love, well, then I'll, I'll give him motivated service and motivated time. Today, I'm asking you to say, even if he does not, even if people in this area of my life continue to be difficult for me, I will serve him with full devotion. I will serve them as if I were serving him because somehow even in serving the least of these, I'm serving him. And he is worth my complete devotion, my completely devoted service. I'm asking you to say that. Maybe you've been saying, you know, if God gives me experiences and uh, deep emotion with the type of music that I love, the kind of style that I love, then I'll be faithful in gathering with brothers and sisters and I'll give him worship. But otherwise, you know what, I'm going to find some other things to do. You know, our God is able, God is able to move hearts to tears and joy and worship. And I'm asking today for you to say, even if he does not, even if it's an effort for me, I will come and I will worship God with my complete devotion. I don't know what this means for you. I know that personally, from one day to the next, far too often the truth is that if my day goes well, you know, if I get good news, if circumstances break right, I'm much more likely to live with joy, to be more likely to serve with a devoted spirit, to be more motivated to tell other people about God, to be more generous with my time and with my money. And if not, you know, if I get even a little close to the furnace, I begin to bend the knee to God's called self-absorption, self-interest, self-pity. Because ultimately, the name of the gold statue that we're all tempted to bow down to is me. Ultimately, the name of that unnamed statue in the story that the human race has been bowing down to for a long time is just called me. And one day, ultimately, you will bow down before that statue or you will bow down before God with full devotion. And so today I'm asking you, I'm, I'm calling you to a higher level because we are called to live our lives centered in and devoted to Christ because he is our model, the one we love, the one who went before us. And the day came for him once in the garden when Jesus himself, the son of God said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Do not make me go through this. Spare me this ultimate suffering. You are able, Father, you are able. But then he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. 
You're able to spare me, but even if you do not, I will not turn away. I will drink this cup to the last drop. And on the cross, the Son of God says to his Father, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. God is able. God is infinitely good, and he showers us with gifts of joy. But I'm asking you to decide today, even if he does not, I will be devoted to him. All right, now I'm gonna ask you to spend some time talking to God. I wanna ask you to reflect on this for some time. Is there anywhere in your life where you've been holding back complete devotion? Anywhere. Is there anywhere fear or disappointment or hurt or sin has been keeping you from following him with utter abandon, with utter trust? Have you been bending the knee anywhere else? I'd like to ask you to decide and to pray. Pray, even if he does not, I will be devoted to Christ. Would you bow your heads and I'm going to ask you, would you decide and would you tell God? I'm going to pray with you now, but maybe you need to spend some time on your own praying and making a decision. God, I pray for those who are listening that they would decide in their hearts that they will not bow down to any God that they have set up in this world. Uh, any God like Nebuchadnezzar wants us all to bow down to, to worship. When, when you are all-powerful God in front of us, we need to be bowing down to and worshiping you. God, help us to, to have the kind of uh, love for you and devotion to you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego displayed in this story in Daniel 3. Help us come back to this story and read it again and understand it more fully and to reflect on it in our own lives. And God, would you just give us some time now where we can make a decision? Is there anywhere in our lives where we're putting something before you, where we're devoting our lives to something other than you? God, would you help us to, uh, to work that out to, to make a decision that no longer are we going to put that thing ahead of you, that we're going to give you our full devotion, that we're going to follow you, and we're going to trust you. Even if you don't, even if you don't provide the things that we want you to provide, God, we're still going to follow you. We're still going to trust you. God, help us to live those kinds of lives. And we know that that's where we're going to experience the kind of life that you created for us to experience. We're going to find joy in the midst of trials and pain even because we're doing the kinds of things that you want us to be doing and we're following after you with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and all of our strength and god i just pray for everyone who's listening right now that they would spend time with you and just do business with you and get straight with you and i ask it in jesus name amen Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.